Welcome to our CTSNet Beats podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jessica Luke, and I'm a cardiovascular surgery resident from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. It is my absolute pleasure to bring to you the latest research, news, and interviews from the world of cardiothoracic surgery. Every week, links to articles or videos discussed will be provided in the show notes. In addition, you can keep up with the latest cardiothoracic news by subscribing to the CTSNet journal and news scan and subscribing to this podcast. As much as I wish COVID-19 has come to an end in 2021, I'm afraid that it will continue to stick with us, at least for now, until an effective vaccine is in place. As we welcome the year 2021, we face the next stage of this pandemic, which is the rollout of vaccines, as well as news of COVID-19 mutated variants that are rapidly spreading across the world. With these rapid changes, felt that it would be of relevance to review the latest vaccines available, as well as developments in its rollout and potential effectiveness or lack of thereof against the new variants. I would like to start off by thanking Dr. Joel Dunning for introducing the topic of vaccines for COVID-19 in his last podcast with an overview of the trials to date and sharing his institution's experience where our podcast today will be very special as it will build upon those topics discussed with our special guest, Dr. Dimitrios Kutsinos, who is a board certified general surgeon and thoracic surgery fellow from the University of British Columbia with a PhD in microbiology and immunology from McGill. Dr. Kutsinos will be providing us some insights on these topics related to COVID-19 vaccines and all with a focus on what this all means to cardiothoracic surgeons and our specialty as a whole. Dr. Kutsinos, welcome. It is such an honor to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much, Dr. Luke. It's really a pleasure to, um, to speak to you and, uh, and, and to everybody about this, this topic that I find really fascinating and that uh, has become a part of our everyday lives in our, uh, in our profession. Thank you so much, Dr. Kutsinos. So starting it off, perhaps we can discuss what we currently know about COVID-19 and immunity. Um, COVID-19, um, uh, the disease and, and SARS coronavirus too, the virus, um, haven't been around uh, very long. We've only known of these for, for about a year now. And, uh, and it's quite incredible, the international efforts um, that have been made and are, and are still being made in order to better understand this virus and this disease. Now, what do we know about really some of the basics of, uh, of COVID-19 um, immunity? Well, we know that about 50 to 75% of infections may be mild or, or asymptomatic. Now, paradoxically, these asymptomatic individuals may have a significantly longer duration of viral shedding than their symptomatic counterparts. And in addition to that, asymptomatic or mildly ill individuals develop low levels of antibody-mediated immunity. And that's a very important consideration for not only reinfection, but also for, um, uh, for the development of herd immunity, which um, um, will be very important in, in controlling this pandemic on the long run. 
Now, we know that SARS coronavirus 2 is, is a very sneaky virus and it, and it suppresses the activation of the innate immune system and it also dampens interferon responses. When it does that, this leads to really protracted incubation periods. And these pre-symptomatic periods in those infected can be as long as 12 days. That's why a lot of um, areas after an exposure um, ask for a 14-day quarantine so that these pre-symptomatic periods can, um, can finish and then the, the individual starts to experience their, uh, their symptoms. Now in contrast for influenza, this is only between one and four days. And uh, this is what makes this virus very, uh, very tricky uh, because of its incredible ability to, uh, to replicate quickly and spread very quickly as we know. Now, failure to accomplish early control of the virus resolves in very high viral burden, dysregulated and even lethal ARDS um, that can ultimately uh, lead to, uh, to a patient's death. And the antibody response, if a patient survives um, this infection, um, wanes within certain, wanes within a few weeks after infection in most people infected with, uh, with the virus. Now, there are three main risk factors from dying from COVID-19. They include being elderly, having many comorbidities, and actually being male. And it's very interesting. A recent study published by, uh, uh, by a group in, in France compared two cohorts of people that were infected with COVID-19. One cohort had very mild and, or asymptomatic um, um, symptoms whereas the other had life-threatening symptoms. And they analyzed these patients and they found that the patients that had life-threatening symptoms um, actually developed autoantibodies to uh, their interferon. And this dampened their immune response and actually led to very, very high levels of, uh, of inflammation. And this all has to do with um, a genetic mutation that some people have and other people don't. And it turns out that about 12.5% of men have that mutation and only 2.5% of women have that mutation. And, um, and that is why uh, men have a slightly higher chance of having much, much more severe disease than, uh, than women do. Now, this isn't the first time that we've seen this. Uh, very severe TB does this with um, dampening interferon gamma very severe staphylococcal infections do this by dampening interleukin-6. And, uh, and this is just another example of how we're still learning about COVID-19 um, immunology um, as, this, uh, as this pandemic um, progresses. And what do we not know? Well, we don't really understand how durable these antibodies are gonna be. It's still a very young infection it's only been around for about a year, and uh, the international effort has been extraordinary in uh, in uh, in researching these uh, very important uh, parts of the viral um, life cycle and the uh, immune response to develop and uh, to develop so quickly these vaccine candidates that we'll talk about uh, in today's podcast. 
That's phenomenal. Thank you so much, Dr. Katsinos, for providing us that overview of what we know and what we don't know about COVID-19 and immunity. And um, in terms of moving on towards uh, talking about the vaccines, which have um, so rapidly developed and are now being rolled out in uh, worldwide, can you tell us about what options are available um, and what may become available in the near future um, that are in the pipeline currently for uh, COVID-19? Uh, certainly, there, there are six main categories um, of vaccine platforms um, today. The ones that we hear about the most are the nucleic acid-based vaccines and the two vaccines that have been approved for use in, uh, in the United States and Canada now are uh, mRNA-based vaccines that we'll talk about a little bit later. But you also have other um, platforms such as virus-like particle vaccines, protein subunit vaccines, inactivated viruses, recombinant viral vectored vaccines, and even um, live attenuated virus uh, vaccines. But as a whole, um, the three most important um, vaccines that occupy approximately 80% of what is being researched uh, currently include uh, the nucleic acid-based vaccines, the protein subunit vaccines, and the uh, recombinant um, viral vectored vaccines. Now, uh, the, uh, the most important one, at least, at least currently, because two of these are, are approved, are, are these nucleic acid-based vaccines. Now, now, they emerged as a promising platform in about 2018. Now, basically how they work is that there's an antigen encoding mRNA sequence that is complexed into a, a carrier lipid nanoparticle. Now, this is delivered via the vaccination into the cellular, cytop cellular cytoplasm of the host cells, and then protein translation begins. And the protein that is being translated is the protein of the SARS coronavirus 2 virus, the spike protein. And then the host recognizes this, this protein and develops antibodies against it. And then when the individual uh, becomes infected later, um, these antibodies that have already been produced neutralize the virus and they don't get sick. Now, what's really interesting about these vaccines is that they are not infectious and, then, and they can be administered indefinitely. You could get dose after dose after dose after dose of this vaccine and still produce more and more and more antibodies. Now, this is in contrast to viral vectors where the host develops immunity against these vaccines because they use a virus that encodes a part of the uh, SARS coronavirus 2 um, spike protein. And uh, when the body is done producing antibodies against the spike protein, well, it has also produced antibodies against the, the vaccine itself. And that's why the host cannot be vaccinated a second time. We know that uh, uh, these uh, vaccines have a very robust immune response and that they can be modified relatively easily. Um, you can very easily uh, remove the mRNA sequence of the spike protein and then introduce a new one should the virus mutate in the future, or should you want to create a vaccine against another, um, another target. The other uh, types of, of vaccines um, uh, that, are, uh, that are important are, are the recombinant viral vector vaccines that we briefly just spoke about. Now, again, these are based on a viral platform that is either 
replication deficient or that expresses antigens derived from the target pathogen. Now they've been successfully used to, to uh, vaccinate against Ebola and they are known to induce very, very strong um, T cell responses. Now they do not need an adjuvant or a booster unlike the mRNA vaccines. And most also express the spike protein, the surface protein of the virus that is uh, so very immunogenic. And pre-existing antibodies can prevent such vaccines from engaging the immune system. For example, if you get vaccinated with a specific adenoviral vectored vaccine today, and say 20 years down the road, another vaccine is developed with the same platform, well, that platform will be ineffective because you already have antibodies against the vaccine. And then the third one, the protein subunit vaccines, these contain um, purified viral proteins that are injected directly into the host, eliciting an immune response. And now similar to the mRNA vaccines, these can be readministered indefinitely but the immune responses vary with regards to these. Um, some can be very weak and others can be um, reasonably strong. And these are actually already in use. So examples of protein subunit vaccines include uh, the uh, pertussis vaccine, uh, the HBV vaccine, and also the uh, pneumococcal uh, polysaccharide vaccines that are currently being used. So that is uh, the third, and I think those are the top three uh, platforms that are currently um, uh, being used today. Thank you very much for that overview, Dr. Kutsinos. And can you tell us um, about the vaccine candidates uh, that are currently on the market now and specifically how they differ from each other? Yes, of course. So um, the, the vaccine, the two vaccine candidates that are, that are making um, the most headlines today are, are the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. Now they're both mRNA vaccines and, and we'll start off with, with the Pfizer vaccine. So the Pfizer vaccine is an mRNA vaccine um, that is um, associated with a lipid nanoparticle. And this encodes the receptor binding domain of that spike protein, that very important receptor protein on the surface of the virus. Now it is a, a two dose cycle now, the doses are uh, between uh, three and four weeks apart. Um, they do require um, adjuvants in the vaccine, which is important because some people end up being allergic to some of these adjuvants and there have been reports of uh, allergic reactions against these vaccines. Now, um, when Pfizer uh, completed its, its large um, trial, trials initially, they, um, they submitted a press release showing uh, over 90% efficacy of this, of this vaccine after the two-dose regimen. And later when this be became uh, uh, published, that vaccine efficacy was, uh, was just about 95%. And um, really, uh, really quite remarkable that they were able to get such high um, efficacy from, uh, from this mRNA vaccine that uh, uh, has been in development for, for, for less than a year. Now, having worked with, with mRNA in the past, um, mRNA is very unstable and, and mRNA can degrade uh, very, very easily. Um, when I was doing my, um, 
my, my PhD work and when I was working with mRNA, we had to store it in, in minus 70 degree freezers and, and uh, the, uh, the amount of time that we could work with it was limited because of this, of this instability. And, uh, and that is one of the, the issues with the Pfizer vaccine is that it, it needs to be um, stored in, in uh, minus 70 degree um, freezers. And that makes distribution of this vaccine a little bit more challenging. Um, and certainly in, in, in big countries like the United States or Canada, let's say uh, a vaccine is being produced in uh, New York and um, there's a vaccine distribution center in Alameda, California, for example. So this vaccine has to go into a truck to the airport in New York, get on a plane, fly all the way to San Francisco, get on another truck, go all the way to Alameda before it's, uh, it's distributed. That's a lot of time for a vaccine that is so, um, so delicate and so fragile um, to, be, uh, to be transported. And, and that is one of the reasons um, why that can be a, an issue in, in, in the, the rollout process. Now, in contrast, the uh, Moderna vaccine also is an mRNA vaccine that um, um, expresses the, uh, the spike protein of the virus. This also requires a booster and adjuvant and uh, produces very strong antibody uh, responses uh, similar to the Pfizer vaccine. Now, um, this is based on a, on a mRNA uh, MERS vaccine that was also produced by uh, Moderna. So they had a good experience with, uh, with this type of technology in the past. And uh, they were able to come up with a vaccine that does not require storage in minus 70 degrees and can be transferred um, around uh, in coolers. And um, these are the two uh, main vaccines that are approved um, in the United States and Canada um, right now. A third vaccine that um, has been recently approved in the United Kingdom is the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine in collaboration with the University of, uh, of Oxford. Now, in contrast to the mRNA vaccines, this is a chimpanzee adenoviral vectored vaccine. This also expresses the spike protein of the SARS coronavirus 2 virus. And this spike protein is expressed in conjunction with the adenovirus vector. Now, a booster and an adjuvant are not required because they produce very, very strong immune responses. And this is a non-replicating virus and humans have no pre-existing immunity to it. And that's why it works so well. The caveat, however, is once you get inoculated once with this vaccine, you can't get a second dose of this vaccine or any other vaccine with this adenoviral vector because you will develop antibodies against the adenoviral vector. Now, um, it's a non-replicating virus and it show, um, trials showed that it uh, prevents symptoms and does not transmit between hosts. So one of the worries was that the adenovirus will transmit between hosts, but because it's inactivated, um, that is not uh, an issue in their trials. Now there was um, 
um, some reports of, uh, of a participant that had some sort of neurologic complication during the trial. And the trial was um, famously stopped temporarily. It turns out that this was uh, not related to the, uh, uh, to the vaccine. And that is the third vaccine that is approved in the United Kingdom. And that um, I think that rounds out the three top um, uh, vaccines against COVID-19 um, that, uh, that we are looking at today. Thank you, Dr. Kutsinos. And a uh, question for us uh, lay folks like myself, um, if you were to develop antibodies what would be the reaction like if, if you had, let's say, a second dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine, theoretically? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So in, in that vaccine, um, you know, specifically, a lot of the patients developed fatigue, chills, headache, myalgia. The most common symptom was really pain at the injection site, which lingered. And uh, some people reported that this pain actually got worse the second and and maybe even the third day after the vaccine uh, was administered. But um, uh, the, the participants um, should not develop um, you know, severe symptoms uh, to these vaccines. They're very mild symptoms um, that, uh, the, that go away uh, relatively quickly. Thank you, Dr. Kutsinos. And I know that there are a lot of unknowns at this time and the data is rapidly evolving with um, targets of the vaccines being the spike protein. I know that there have been some concerns with the new COVID variants, um, specifically with mutated spike protein parts. What does this mean for the vaccine and, and its rollout? Um, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And there's been a lot of uh, talk in the media recently about the, the UK and the South African strains of, of COVID-19. These are very interesting strains because uh, um, they have a mutation in the spike protein. Um, specifically, it's a mutation codon 501. So in codon 501 of the virus genome, um, in the wild type virus, that codon is an asparagine. And in the mutated virus, that converts into a tyrosine, which makes um, the virus inherently more infectious. And it's very worrisome because this is the same um, spike protein, like we mentioned, that these uh, mRNA vaccines are, are, are based on. And, uh, and there's a lot of international concern that, well, now that these variants are, are spreading very, very quickly, um, are all these vaccines going to be ineffective? Well, um, uh, Pfizer partnered with the University of Texas, and very recently they submitted a paper uh, for publication, um, and they made uh, this paper public prior to its um, uh, peer review and <clears throat> ultimate publication, and they uh, they showed that um, uh, what what they did actually is they. They took um, serum from individuals that were vaccinated against um, uh, COVID-19 with the Pfizer vaccine. And then they took purified viral particles expressing these specific mutations of these variants and actually 14 other variants. I think they used something um, like 16 variants in total. And they combined the serum plasma of those that were vaccinated with these viral variants. 
and they were able to show very good neutralizing um, antibody uh, or rather antibody neutralization of these viruses um, with the conclusion that the vaccines will be effective against these viruses. Now, does that mean that these, that, that these vaccines are, are, the, uh, are the silver bullet? It's difficult to say. We don't know that if there's gonna be a 17th or 18th or 19th or 20th variant. And if those variants have very specific mutations that allow for a big enough conformational change or are in the antibody receptor portion of the, of the, uh, of the spike protein, um, uh, it is possible that the vaccines may not recognize those mutations. Then again, um, from a viral standpoint, um, maybe the virus won't be able to replicate with those um, mutations. Maybe those mutations will make the virus less transmissible. So uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to predict how this mutagenesis will, uh, will change. We know from our um, experience with HIV that um, when we treat HIV, HIV develops multiple resistant mutations um, over the years. Um, and each of these resistant mutations make, makes the virus uh, more and more weak and more and more difficult. Um, it makes it more and more difficult for itself to replicate. And, uh, and this overall decrease in viral fitness um, is another thing that uh, we may observe with, uh, with COVID-19 as these uh, mutations happen. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, that very interesting perspective and your thoughts on that, Dr. Kutsinos. And with so many people in the world, vaccination rollout is inherently a major challenge. And as we're seeing now is like trial by fire. From an immunology perspective, what are some approaches that can be undertaken to ensure an effective rollout strategy? It's a great question, and it's, it's something that that a lot of uh, of countries are are struggling with with currently with with this vaccine um, this vaccine rollout. We have uh, many different vaccine candidates so far. The ones that are approved in North America are the mRNA vaccines the United Kingdom, the uh, AstraZeneca and University of Oxford vaccine has been approved. So their rollout contain, contains three vaccines now, two of which require two doses and one of which uh, only re requires one dose. And it's, um, it's, it's very challenging um, uh, to say the least to, to juggle all of these um, uh, uh, moving parts. Um, in order to come out with a uh, come up with a uh, a successful um, rollout, um, in in the world, I think um, Israel is uh, the country that has vaccinated the most people uh, to date. I think they vaccinated over twenty percent of their population, and their strategy was was very simple. They vaccinated people over fifty. Um, excuse me. They vaccinated people over sixty. They vaccinated healthcare workers and vulnerable individuals. And as a matter of fact, the very first person to get vaccinated uh, was, uh, was Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. And um, he uh, very publicly received his vaccine to show everybody that it is in fact safe and uh, to sort of curb uh, vaccine hesitancy. 
Now, uh, in Israel, there's over 150 clinics. You even have drive-through clinics where you don't even have to take off your seatbelt. You just roll up, roll down your window, get your vaccine, and and um, and, uh, and and go on. Now, they very famously were able to repackage these vaccines once they received them into smaller little boxes for easier transport. And uh, they compared these boxes to small little pizza boxes. And they were able to, um, to transport them all across the country to the vaccine distribution sites. Um, now the problem with, with, um, with uh, countries like Canada and the United States is that geographically, um, Canada and the United States are much, much bigger than, than Israel. And uh, sort of like what we mentioned earlier, um, transportation and, uh, and storage of these vaccines, especially the Pfizer vaccine, can be very, very tricky. As, as a matter of fact, in, in Canada, um, ironically enough, um, it's very difficult to get the Pfizer vaccine to the northern communities um, where it's incredibly cold because of this um, uh, of the difficulty to keep this vaccine at minus 70 degrees during the entire transport process um, to these um, communities in, uh, in the northern uh, parts of Canada. But with the um, approval of the, uh, the uh, Moderna vaccine and the other vaccines that are um, coming along in the pipeline, um, this rollout is, uh, is being modified and it's being streamlined. Uh, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci said that very soon um, in the United States, they will be able to administer up to a million doses a day with the hopes to, um, to vaccinate a significant portion of the, uh, the population by the end of the year. And that is, um, and that is something that is um, uh, uh, very, um, uh, very important to, uh, to try to ramp up these um, uh, these rollout strategies to the best of our ability, because the more people get vaccinated, the sooner uh, hopefully we'll be able to see a decrease in the uh, in the infection rates and the transmission of this of this virus. Now, um, one of the things that that people are worried about, and it sort of ties into what we were talking about previously, is what if we get a a new mutant variant of this virus, and the vaccines that we currently have are no longer uh, are no longer useful and no longer protect against this mutant variant. Well, these mRNA vaccine strategies um, can be modified very quickly um, within a, a number of weeks to, um, uh, to encode the mutated spike protein or the mutated um, viral protein that, uh, uh, that represents the, uh, the new variant that is in circulation. Now, uh, will we need to be vaccinated only once against um, COVID-19 uh, or SARS uh, coronavirus in our lifetimes um, or multiple times? We don't know. You know, this could be an annual vaccination like influenza if the virus mutates quickly enough, or perhaps this um, uh, vaccine will, uh, will cut it and all the mutated versions that come up after um, uh, won't, uh, won't be as transmissible, won't be as, as infectious, and overall won't be as fit as the current 
as the current virus. In any case, I think we're off to, a, to an excellent start. Um, this vaccine rollout is being ramped up in, um, in all the countries. I think currently in the United States, about 2% of the population has been, uh, has been vaccinated. In Canada, it's just under 1%. I believe it's about 0.8%. But as these um, uh, vaccines are being mass produced and uh, mass distributed, those numbers are gonna increase um, very, very quickly in the coming uh, weeks and months. So incredibly promising. And would you have some advice for the cardiothoracic surgical community? Yeah, I think, you know, I think we're all, uh, not some cliche, but we're all in this together. Uh, I think we're all feeling this, this terrible COVID fatigue. Yeah. But I think we, um, we are at a point in the pandemic where we really can't let our guard down right now. We, we don't know um, if after getting vaccinated, maybe we'll all be asymptomatic carriers and maybe we'll still be transmitting the virus. We, we don't know these little nuanced things, although unlikely this may be something that, that can potentially happen. Um, and then, you know, we will eventually um, encounter or operate or treat a patient that, uh, that has COVID-19. Um, there are false negatives. Um, and uh, um, in our center, we've certainly experienced uh, uh, patients that uh, had uh, false negative tests that we operate on and ended up having uh, a positive tracheal aspirate. Uh, for example, but you know, thankfully, with use of proper uh, uh, PPE, um, we were able to really uh, uh, minimize the uh, the exposure and, uh, and the consequences of that. You know, we have to continue to wear masks when we're out in the public. We have to continue to uh, to socially distance, and you know, I, I think. I think really to, to sum things up, we, we really need to be gentle to others and to ourselves. Um, we are in, in the middle of a, a, an unprecedented global pandemic. We've come a very long way and we can finally say that the end is, is truly near and we're really doing a, a good job um, as, a, as a global community to, um, to fight uh, COVID-19 and to, uh, to make it a thing of the past. So well said. Thank you so much, Dr. Kutsunos. It has been such an absolute honor to have you join us and for offering your insights into this incredibly complex and rapidly evolving topic that is certainly on top of the minds of many. And to all, uh, thank you very much for joining us for our CTS Net Beats podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly have. Uh, my name is Dr. Jessica Luke and I'm a cardiovascular surgery resident from the University of British Columbia and your CTS NetBeats podcast host and Dr. Brian Mitzman will be joining you next week. Before we go, a brief reminder to register and join the upcoming Society of Thoracic Surgeons annual meeting 2021 from January 29th to 31st for a fully virtual and immersive digital experience that combines the tradition of excellence with the innovation of tomorrow with sessions being a mix of on-demand and live, with panel discussions, small group sessions, 360-degree videos, deep dives, and more. In addition, check out the CTSNet Year in Review series, looking at the most popular content published in 2020. 
Your contributions assist CTSnet's mission to facilitate communication, collaboration, education, and interaction amongst cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams from across the globe. If you would like to get in touch with us, please visit ctsnet.org. You can find me on Twitter with handle at JessicaLuke1. And please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a five-star review so that we can be easily found. Put some comments below so that we know what you are thinking about and suggest a few things for us to chat about. And make sure to subscribe to the CTSnet Journal A New Scan, where we all go around looking for the best papers and we tell you about them so that you don't need to go through all the journals. And if you see any good papers as well, send them to us. Thank you everyone from me and everyone from CTSnet and stay safe and well. We look forward to seeing you all next time.